Well, the congregation of the Lord, shall we read again in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Well, congregation, on this Easter Sunday, we began to reflect upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious benefits that flow out of that singular gracious act of God towards his people. We began to see the reality that Christ has overcome death. And having reflected upon that, we transition to uh, what is said, especially in the second part of that verse. Not only that uh, Christ is the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore, but that he has the keys of hell and of death. He has been bestowed this singular honor and privilege, indeed a, a just reward for his victory over death. And we said that negatively that concerns his ability to cast his enemies and rebels into death and hell, but as well positively the power to redeem his own from that terrible destiny of damnation. This is the wonderful truth of the resurrection For Christ did not rise merely as a private person, but as the Redeemer and Mediator and bringing these rich blessings of salvation unto sinners such as ourselves. And we noted that uh, if you would examine this text in the light of all of Scripture, the first um, exercise of this authority or these keys would concern that of justification. Christ is the one who was not only delivered for our offenses, we saw, but also he was raised for our justification. Apart from Christ's rising from the dead on the third day, not one of us could receive this wonderful grace of being regarded as holy, or rather righteous, in the sight of God, fulfilling all of the commandments of God. But, uh, as we know, that is not the only blessing that flows from the resurrection of Christ in our catechism, as we shall see, also addresses two other exercises of the keys. And we will consider those this afternoon. We will consider, uh, first, the, the fact or the reality that Christ is our sanctification, the risen Christ, our sanctification, And as well, we will see that the risen Christ is our glorification. And to see kind of where we're going, let's read again Lord's Day 17. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? Answer first, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he has made us, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. 
And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. So let us notice the second benefit that is listed here chronologically in the Catechism. We are, by his power, raised up to a new life. The risen Christ is our sanctification. I think it was uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great evangelist in Wales and later in London, that in his great series through the book of Romans said that you cannot preach the gospel faithfully without sometimes sounding like or even being accused of being an antinomian. And what is, what is that word? Children, that sounds like a big word, doesn't it? Antinomian. Well, we get that word from the word nomos, law. And so it basically just means anti-law or against the law. And the idea of those who actually are antinomians is that they do not need to obey the law of God in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved. There is no necessity of a true change of heart and life. And whether Martin Lloyd-Jones was correct in saying that all ministers, if they're faithful, must sooner or later be accused of that, certainly we must say that the Apostle Paul was accused of that in his ministry. And if you would think about it, if, if all that you knew about Paul was the doctrine which we consider this morning, especially from Romans chapter 4, the fact that Christ was raised for our justification and the fact that, as he says later on in this wonderful book, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. If if that is all that you would know, that through union with Christ, by faith, we are declared perfectly righteous in the sight of God. If that was all that you knew about his message, you might say, well, there very well then. Anyone can believe this gospel and go on living in the worst wickedness imaginable and nevertheless regard themselves as a citizen of heaven. And so in order to disabuse his uh, readers in the church of Rome of this false teaching. He addresses this especially in the sixth chapter of Romans, chapter six of Romans, which we read. And you notice that he addresses this right away in, in this chapter. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin, live any longer therein. So you see that this is the first thing from Paul's uh, mind. He would never dream of teaching that you can go on in known sin, giving no regard unto the holy commandments of God, and not care about obeying those commandments and still regard yourself to be a Christian. No, there must be a change and a transformation. And where other religions may at this point have much to say about how it is that you must pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you must in some way endeavor or, um, or try hard enough in order to attain some kind of righteousness in yourself, 
Rather, you can see that Paul's logic follows a very different track. Even already, he's spoken of the language of dead to sin. You can see, once again, he's tracing back to the very taproot of this wonderful gospel of which he preaches, and that is union with Christ. Being joined unto this mediator is the source not only of our justification, but as well of an inward transformation of the heart and the mind and the will, which concerns all of life. And as you go on, you come to see that it is the resurrection of Christ in particular that the Christian is to think of as the source of this holiness. Notice how he continues in verse 3. Know we not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, I wager that perhaps many Christians, even Reformed Christians, do not often speak of their baptism the way that Paul did. And that owes not any defect in the biblical witness concerning the great truth of our baptism, but rather because we neglect those truths. For Paul... Baptism was a very sacred, holy, and spiritual instrument of God's grace in the heart of believers. It's not a mere testimony of our faith, but of God's sacred covenant of grace that it is concerned with. God entering into dealings with sinners and thereby signifying and sealing all the blessings of that covenant as they are found in the Lord Jesus himself. And thus he can speak of baptism for believers as that which is testifying to the inward grace of the heart of which it points to and of which it seals union with Christ. He says in verse 4, Therefore we are, baptized, we are buried with him, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The idea here is if you are united with Christ by faith, then indeed everything that Christ did, he did on your behalf. Both his perfect life his atoning death, his burial in the grave is a testimony to the reality of that death, as well as his resurrection from that grave on the third day. Each one was done, not as a private person, as we've already said, but as the mediator and as the representative of all of God's elect. So that now the believer who indeed has received the blessing of union with this Christ in a spiritual way, such as we are part of his great spiritual body, receiving our righteousness 
from him by justification. So also he says, we also should walk in newness of life. The flow of logic is this. As Christ lives by resurrection power, by a miracle of God, so also all of his spiritual body are to walk in newness of life. Their life is now characterized by a dramatic and a supernatural principle of God's grace such that from the inside out they are being renewed and transformed by this divine power. You notice how later on in this uh, chapter, as he, be, as he speaks about it in verse 10, he leans in in particular to this theme of the resurrection of Christ is that which the believer is to look to in his pursuit of holiness. He says in verse 10, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth, liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We spoke this morning about those who deny the resurrection of Christ. Those who would even doubt and question and dispute with the sacred testimony of Scripture concerning the singular grace of God. And I'd wager that everyone here who heard those things would, would, would look at that and see that as a great sin, to doubt the resurrection of Christ. Surely you'd say of such a person, what a corrupt and filthy mind which would call into question the power and the very word of the living God. But, great, but the Apostle Paul here also says that not only is that uh, reminiscent of an utterly wrong way and even a sinful way of thinking, but so also where believers, true Christians, fail to see the spiritual and supernatural import for themselves. He says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, indeed, if you are not a believer today, if you would have no right to call yourself a true Christian because, indeed, you lie in death, you've never exercised true faith in Jesus Christ, you are, for all, all purposes, a, one who is headed for hell and destruction, then, indeed, there's every reason to not regard yourself as this new creature in Christ. Indeed, you would examine your life and say that you've never once found your consolation or peace outside of yourself in the work of Christ. No, indeed, those things are strange and mysterious to you. You know nothing of them. But what of those here who are believers? You are a believer. You have indeed fled unto Christ for mercy. You have found your consolation in his wounds. You have indeed found that your righteousness in yourself is nothing, but his is perfect and all that you could ever need. What, what of your remaining sin? What of the excuses 
that you make where you say, well, of course we're all sinners and, and sin, well, you know, it's something that everyone has to live with in one way or another. And my sin, well, it's, it's the sort of thing that I see other Christians uh, struggling with and, and certainly I look at myself and yeah, there's, there's certainly been improvements in some areas. So this, this sin that I'm dealing with, this sin which yet remains, well, I'm going to coddle it, I'm going to nurture it, I'm going to savor it, I'm going to, at the end of the day, say that it's something I just must live with as any other um, physical infirmity. And so Paul would say, you are thinking wrongly, Christian. There is a problem with your thinking. If you would not doubt that Christ has risen, how can you but doubt that you who are joined to him by faith also must walk in newness of life? And I'd say if you would regard yourself in that way, if you would truly believe what the Word of God says about you, Christian, that you live not of yourself, but through a new principle of life and grace and power, then what follows? Well, there must, there must be this that follows. As he says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. What is he saying? Just as Christ is not dead in the grave, sitting immobile and, and unmoving, he is active, he is alive, he is Alive forevermore, must it also not be the case with you, Christian, that you would be active in the pursuit of the glory of God, that you would be active in yielding everything that you are and everything that you have unto him, every member of your body, every fiber of your being, every faculty of your mind, every piece of your property, every relationship, every responsibility, Every moment of every day, it all belongs to God, and it must be offered unto God, unto the service and for the glory of God. Is it not how Christ lives? Does not his heart beat for the glory of his Father? Is that not what Christ desires for and in his people? And is Christ's arm short that it cannot save? Not only saving from the guilt of sin, but the power thereof. Can you look at anything in your life and say, well, that is too much for Christ to deal with. That is too much such that I cannot have transformation in life. No, if we would rightly regard who Christ is and who he is for his people, then there can be no such blasphemous thoughts. I love how... uh, Paul also makes it very practical, and especially in another portion of Scripture. And I think here of Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, if you would wish to turn there. And in Ephesians chapter 5, I think he, he gives some very clear parameters and guidance for how this plays itself out in the Christian life. And if you would look in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14... We read this. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ 
shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of God is. There's all sorts of things we could say about the ongoing work of sanctification in the soul. But I think there's some really general principles we can draw from these words. One, will you notice that the believer is not passive in this sanctification? Yes, indeed. There are certain things in which when the Spirit of God is at work, we are utterly passive. In, in regeneration, in that first uh, imprint of grace upon the soul, the soul is dead in, in spiritual things. It can do absolutely nothing. And so uh, the soul is passive as it respects that first working of God's grace in the soul. But in the ongoing work of sanctification, in the transformation that happens by divine power, there are things that the, the will and the heart are involved in. There is indeed, by God's grace, such a change that we do cooperate with the things that God is doing in us. And so we must walk, we must exercise our faculties in the life of the Christian. And we must do so with great care and not as the fools who do not regard the things of God. And you notice that uh, in the practical outworking of that, there are, there are two things that uh, he especially concerns us with, and that is our time. The time that we have. How precious is time? It's so the one commodity that it seems that there is uh, no substitute for. You can't have counterfeit time. You, you have a certain amount of time in your life that is a gift from the Lord, and, and each moment of it is so precious, never to be received again. And for the one who is regenerated and sanctified by the Spirit of God, who is indeed walking circumspectly, they treat that time as something to be redeemed. Every moment of every day, you see it as a, a gift from the Lord, and you begin to ask yourself, well, how is it that I'm using my time? Is it for self? Is it merely for a buck to get ahead in the world? Is it merely for reputation so that the people will look at me different? Or is it for God? Is it oriented to that which is pleasing to God? Well, indeed, that's the second thing he mentions, isn't it? He mentions there, wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You must understand what the will of God is, his revealed will in those commandments, those commandments of love towards the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love the brethren and the sisters of the church, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. It's all of love, and that is what the will of God is. And so the question becomes, are we those? Are we those who indeed have this principle of grace in the soul. Well, indeed, we must say that even if at times the gospel may sound antinomian, if you 
dwell upon the doctrine of justification, the reality is that it is the furthest thing from it. Yes, indeed, the law cannot save, but the one who is saved is saved unto good works by the standard of the law, for the law reflects that which is good and wholesome and right, and it is what we must render in joyful gratitude unto God. Let us therefore regard this wonderful grace of sanctification for what it truly is, is a most precious, precious grace. Indeed, our sanctification will never be perfect in this life, but let us never despise it. Let us never be those who are willing to succumb to the pattern of the church of our day, spiritually lazy, spiritually adrift, not regarding the things of the Lord, not careful in the things that the Lord has spoken, not redeeming our time, not giving attention to the things that God has spoken. Let us rather see that as Christ is risen from the dead, we must awake. Awake as those who have been born unto a new kind of existence, a spiritual reality in which all of life is about God and all of our service unto him is but our good and reasonable service. So we see that in the second place. The risen Christ, not only our justification, but our sanctification. And in this do we not see that Jesus is dispensing those keys, not only the punishment of death, but also as well, dispensing as well with the power of of sinful humanity that is deserving of death, making us fit receptacles for heavenly glory. But the third thing that we should see from the administration of these uh, keys, congregation, this one who has the keys of hell and of death, is that there is also that which concerns our glorification. The risen Christ is our glorification. And we'll notice that our catechism speaks of this as well. It says, We are also by his power raised up to a new life. And then it goes on. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. So if we would see justification as it is, a declaration of God regarding us as righteous in Christ. If we regard sanctification as the inward transformation such that we are actually turned into the likeness of Christ in our holiness of life, then this third thing that is held before us, our glorification is that which concerns the final destruction of the miseries of this life. And translation into the final happiness and blessedness of the eternal state, what is called here the blessed resurrection. And you notice that it's bound up with that word hope. Hope. And we need to understand the catechism is not using hope there as the world uses it, as, as hope is often treated as something that is very fragile, something that is very weak, something that is, well, I just sort of hope this will 
be the case? No, according to biblical terminology, hope has more of the idea of assurance. It is the idea of faith blossoming and growing unto that which is sound and strong and confident in the things of the Lord, especially those which are the promises of God yet to come to pass, especially those that concern the eternal happiness of the blessed. And for this, I think it is profitable to consider how Paul speaks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which we've been reading from today, also this morning. But this afternoon, you notice we began reading at verse 16. And he picks up on this theme of hope, doesn't he? For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So what is the context here? Well, it appears as though, unfortunately, the church of Corinth, as they were prone to do, were carried away with a terrible heresy that also had terrible consequences for their Christian lives. They came to doubt the reality of the future resurrection of the Lord's people at the end of history. What we confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you see how Paul argues. He says that this is so intimately connected with the, with the resurrection of Christ that if, if you're really going to go there, if you're really going to question this central part of Christianity, then what follows? Well, that we only have hope in Christ as it concerns this life only, as it says in verse 19. That what the gospel ultimately offers is a nice life in the here and now. You can be part of a nice community. You can have some prosperity through the good morals that uh, the, the Bible offers. You can correct some deficiencies in yourself and, and ultimately you can go to your grave as one who's had a good time. And he says, if that were true, then we, the Christians, would be of all men most miserable. He goes on to say in this uh, chapter how that's the utter uh, opposite of how the Christians lived, certainly how he's lived. It says he was engaging uh, in a fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, and he's really not talking about actual animals, but the terrible afflictions that he was experiencing as he did battle with the false teachers. We know that Paul didn't live for this life alone. He was scourged. He was imprisoned. He was uh, stoned and and various other things. He was living as a man who seemed to be out out of a different world, totally living and spending himself in order for a future world and a future hope. And he says that that's ultimately what is necessary and ultimately what comes through a right understanding of the gospel of the resurrection. Notice how he continues there in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And he continues with that same language, doesn't he, in verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits after 
afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. And so the picture is of a great crop that a, a farmer might have planted, a great crop. And, and the first fruits, well, that's just a little bit of the harvest that, that you begin with. And in the Old uh, Testament, you would actually offer the first fruits as a sort of a holy sacrifice unto the Lord, showing that you were really dedicating the whole thing to God. And what he's saying is that the resurrection of Christ, it follows the same logic. It's not just an isolated event. It's a harbinger of a great, bountiful harvest to come. Just as Christ has risen, so also must all those who belong to him, he says. And then he transitions to the logic or the the parallel of Adam in verses 21 to 22. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Just just as those terrible uh, enemies of hell and death were unleashed upon the world through the transgression of our first father, Adam, so through the second, and as he's called, the last Adam, this one, Jesus Christ, there will be a dramatic change that takes place, the ushering in of a new humanity. And it would be a great thing if, indeed, that this humanity consisted of a righteous state through his justification and a holy internal transformation by his sanctifying grace. But you notice that he is not content to leave it there. No, he speaks of something far greater in this chapter. He speaks of something that is to come, which is almost inexpressible, but He stretches the boundaries of our language to speak about him. He speaks of what will come at the end in verse 24. Then cometh the end. The end of all things. The end of history. What will happen, Paul? When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The destruction of death itself. You see how it follows from his kingdom, the kingdom of his elect, his redeemed, his mediatorial kingdom, what we could call the elect church. This kingdom, this group of believers he will offer up to his father at the end of all things. When all authorities have been abolished and there is a new heavens and a new earth, and all is committed unto God, then death itself will be abolished. And what does that mean for the likes of you and me? Well, it's uh, so much we could cover in this chapter, but ultimately what he's getting at, especially when he uh, weaves together some of these imagery that he's been using of the harvest and of the new uh, humanity, he speaks about it in this way. He says in verse 44 that of his uh, people, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And what is he talking about there? Well, there must needs be a change, he's saying. You look at our own bodies and what are they doing? They are breaking down. 
our bodies, no matter our age, we know something of the pains of body. We know how frail creatures we are. We know that if we were to be caught up into the place of God's blinding glory and light and, and spiritual presence, then how is it that we could expect not to be incinerated as moths in the flame of a great and glorious God? But though our bodies will be just as tangible, just as, as human, just as physical, they will be spiritual. They will be like unto Christ's body. For though he has um, a physical body, he has all the spiritual capacities that suit him for that heavenly state. And so we put all this together and notice how he, uh, he summarizes everything beginning there in verse 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. He's saying, no, you're not in your present kind of body, but something must happen. And what is it, Paul? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Speaking of those who don't have the sleep of death, but are alive at the end of all things when Christ returns. And he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, congregation, when we would regard the mission of Christ, it is this, that all that he has called unto himself in regeneration, he has justified. And all that he has justified, he is sanctifying them. And all that he is sanctifying, he will surely glorify them as well. He will present each one of his people faultless on that great resurrection morning. And each one of us, we will, if we are in Christ today, we will on that day be in him in a much more glorious way. For we will be transformed physically into those spiritual images of Jesus Christ, whereby we have spiritual bodies that can behold the divine glory and offer divine worship and render divine obedience as we can never imagine here today. That is the hope that the believer can look ahead to. And will we feed our our hopes and, and expectations on just a future life? If that were the case, congregation, then we would be of all men most pitied. We would be but those who are just hanging our hopes on utter fancies. Because everything that we base our hope on in this life, it will all fade away. 
But this, this glorious resurrected state, this state of glorified bodies, that is forever and ever. And so it must contextualize. It must inform everything in our lives. We must come to see that when we reflect upon the resurrection of Christ, it is not only pointing to what has been done for us in the past and what Christ is doing in us in the present. It is also the sure pledge, the certain promise, the absolute infallible certainty of this future hope for all of the redeemed. And where that is the place, congregation, do we have not so much cause to glory and worship our great resurrected Christ? He who lives and died and lives forevermore, who has the keys of death and hell. He is the one who deserves our everlasting amen. In the last moment, I'd like to uh, just point to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you really believe that it's not for nothing? Well, sometimes you might be tempted to think so. You might think that you are slaving away in your personal devotions and Christ does not see. You might think that you are spending yourself in loving service for his people, and no one pays attention. You may, may think that as you seek to crucify the flesh unto the praise of your king, that all does not matter. But let me tell you something. Christ knows. Christ knows. He has regard for these things. It is not in vain. It is not pointless, because it is all for him. Congregation, only one life to live will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last, remain immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the